Come no more, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Arao Koroi Hawkins. Coming up first... It's complete news to me. It's really disappointing. And the government has not explained to the people why the, the decision has been made. Kiribati makes a dramatic exit as forum leaders prepare to meet in Suva. We had very productive discussions about the uh, arrangement between Australia and New Zealand for 150 refugees to be transferred to New Zealand. The New Zealand government reiterates its commitment to helping refugees detained in Nauru and PNG by Australia and a New Zealand medical assistance team has hit the ground cautiously running in Niue. We are very aware that we were on a flight which was coming from New Zealand as well. Pacific leaders' efforts to reset regional solidarity are under pressure after Kiribati declared its immediate withdrawal from the Pacific Islands Forum on the eve of one of the most significant leaders' meetings in decades taking place in Suva this week. In a letter to the Forum Secretary-General Henry Puna, the Kiribati President Tanis Maumau expressed his concerns about the leadership of the Forum as well as the Suva Agreement signed in June this year. President Maumau says Kiribati had not signed up to the now controversial deal, which was publicised to mend the leadership rift and prevent the Micronesian sub-region to split from the forum. Joining me now from Suva is RNZ Pacific correspondent Lide Movono. Bula Lide, so has this come as a shock to everyone or were some people expecting this to happen? I think, Koroi, that over the past several months and and more so in the past uh, few weeks, we were expecting some big developments out of Kiribati. Um, You know, their noted absence from the high-level political dialogue, which resulted in the civil agreement, Um, their silence over the past few weeks as senior officials from around the region got together and arrived early to finalize the agenda for for this week's meeting, it became clear to us uh, towards the end of last week that something big was happening with Kiribati. But I don't think anyone actually expected an exit from the Pacific Islands uh, Forum for Tarawa. But it has happened. And so it does set the tone for what the rest of the week will be or what the rest of the year and the coming few years will be for the region. Because this is the first time that a member of the Pacific family, so to speak, has chosen to leave. Definitely. Now, uh, probably just almost an audit. Who is in Suva that we know and is attending and who is still a question mark or can't be there for other reasons? At the moment, we do know who's not here and who can't be here. And the word out of the Fijian government, who are, of course, the chair of the forum, is that everybody else is expected to attend. Uh, With the level of security here at the moment and the lack of access that the media has to the delegations, we haven't been able to eyeball everyone. But over the past couple of hours, I have been able to see uh, most of the, the, the bigger players, most of the bigger countries represented here in terms of their heads of government. So we do know for sure that Kiribati is out of the family and not coming to Suva at all. We understand some diplomatic uh, maneuvering was happening over the past few days to try and change that, but the word is Tarawa is not going to be represented here in Suva. We know also that the Republic of Marshall Islands is not sending a prime minister. There is some complexities over legal maneuvering which had taken place when the RMI had decided to withdraw from the forum. And so it involves uh, parliamentary uh, movements, so you know, amendments to existing legislation in the Marshall Islands in order for their prime minister to attend a forum leaders meeting. So that's nobody from Majuro. We also know that in Nauru there's some concern 
over COVID cases here in PG. Uh, as of yesterday, we've had more than 100 uh, active cases of COVID-19, and with the level of travel into uh, Suva, we're expecting some level of uh, alertness and concern. And so we know those three countries for sure are not going to be here, and everyone else is expected to be here. We understand that uh, um, right now, the New Zealand Prime Minister, as well as the Foreign Affairs Minister, is, is about to land in Missouri, and we understand that the brand new Australian Prime Minister is also on his way. There are, of course, other high-level dignitaries. The head of the Commonwealth is also um, heading this way. Nakalide. Now, um, just look at the, the program for the week, or what kind of things uh, are we expecting um, over the next few days? The agenda should have been the 2050 uh, Pacific Strategy, or the 2050 Strategy for short, which basically is the main plan, the regional architecture for the governments of the region for the next 30 years. It outlines the development priorities, it outlines the way that development is going to be carried out. It's also super important in terms of uh, political leadership and uh, foreign alliances, which uh, can tell us a, a lot about how they intend to engage with outside influence, which is, of course, uh, at the moment, China, Australia, New Zealand, um, the U.S. for sure, and to an extent, Europe. Um, that's supposed to be top of the agenda. It has been overshadowed, of course, by the exit of Kiribati. Um, next up is the Suva Agreement, which is centered around the controversy around Kiribati. And the Suva Agreement is meant to change the face of the Forum Secretariat in that it ensures that the next SG is a Micronesian and that that person uh, ascends to the position in 2024, uh, which basically means that Harry Henry Puna needs to step down at that time. And unlike previous SGs, he uh, apparently is not to apply for re-election. We understand also that in the civil agreement, the terms of Secretary General will now extend from three years to five years. An additional Deputy Secretary General position is meant to be created. And the, the, the reason for that is that at all times, the top officers of the Tivakala's Forum Secretariat will always have a representative in each of the three sub-regions. Now, the other two major parts of the Silver Agreement is the establishment of two offices in Micronesian states. One of them needs to be the Office of the Oceans Commissioner, a position which is normally held by whoever is the Secretary General. And the other office is a new Micronesian regional office of the Pacific Island Foreign Secretary. So that's meant to be top of the agenda and taking up a lot of the conversation over the next three days. Now, climate change, as you know, is the top topic anywhere in the region and especially this week. So we're meant to also be hearing whether or not the Pacific Island Forum is going to endorse Vanuatu's request for an advisory opinion out of the International Court of Justice. Now, that's important because that is an attempt to change the way climate change is, is viewed in that it makes it a human rights protection issue instead of what it currently is. Now, we understand that Australia wants the text around that advisory opinion request to be gentler. So there's going to be some uh, eyes on that and whether or not the group of Pacific leaders can agree to endorse it. And endorsement is important because without the endorsement of United Nations-recognized uh, regional blocs like the Forum, 
um, the advisory opinion request may not actually go through. Now, the elephant in the room, obviously, is China. We, we know past forums uh, and the geopolitics of the region at the moment, past forums have been quite... Um, moderate affairs in terms of media attendance, but I understand everyone and their dogs there this time? Everyone from every region of the world is in Suba this week. Um, the Forum Secretariat communications team tell us 150 people sought accreditation. Uh, the media centre is quite big. We have not seen 100 people yet, but that's meant to change as the leaders of the bigger countries in the Pacific uh, fly in over the next 24 hours. But yes, all eyes of the world are on silver at the moment. And, of course, the, the geopolitical fight over who gets to work in the region and who gets to be friends with who and to what extent uh, is not a formal part of the agenda, but it is most definitely uh, on the topic and on the radar of everyone who is anyone here in the Pacific. And we understand that there is going to be some bilateral conversations between the major countries of the region around um, what they intend to engage with China in. And the fact that Kiribati, who of course hold a strategic geographical location um, that is valuable to the military superpowers of the world, is going to have a bearing on, on how these conversations about China take place in the next few days. Meanwhile, Kiribati's first president and current opposition MP, Sir Iremaya Tabai, says it's out of order for the government to pull out of the Pacific Islands Forum without having a discussion with the people of Kiribati. Sir Iremaya was stunned to hear from RNZ Pacific that the country had left the forum, and he says the public hasn't been told. It's complete news to me. It's really disappointing. And the government has not explained to the people why the, the decision has been made. It's not on. In a system like us, it's accountable to, to, to all the people of Kiribati. And he should explain himself, but he has not. It's simply not good enough. Yes, he's used the justification of the squabble over the leadership and National Day tomorrow. Well, it, I can understand that if we would not be present the meeting, that I can understand that. But I do not understand why we should not be, I mean, represented by a, a, a minister at least. And as I said, you know, if we had withdrawn with the forum, that is a big story for us. And it, there's simply no, as I said, no explanation and no reason why that our decision should be taken at this time. Because our understanding that the countries of the, of the Macronesian area has agreed to have a discussion on how the future SGs are to be appointed. And that, and my understanding, is this to be discussed in the meeting in Suva now. That's why I don't understand the decision made by the government. New Zealand's new immigration minister says the country is willing and actively making as much progress as possible to help detainees on Nauru. Rights groups have called for the evacuation of the remaining refugees and asylum seekers held there by Australia as the country faces COVID-19 in the community for the first time. Around half of the population of Nauru has contracted the virus in three weeks and one person has died. Michael Wood has met with his counterparts in Australia and he told RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis the New Zealand government is doing everything in its power to expedite the process. We had very good discussions in Australia. I met with the new Home Affairs Minister, the Honourable Claire O'Neill, and had very productive discussions about the uh, arrangement between Australia and New Zealand for 150 refugees to be transferred to New Zealand per year. Uh, That's people who are based in Nauru, but also people who are temporarily uh, in Australia. So we now have officials who are working to 
progress that situation. We work through the UNHCR process and uh, I'm very confident that we'll make good progress on that before the end of this year. What progress are we talking about here? Because the end of this year is quite a few months away and the call, as you may have received the briefing on, is for an immediate evacuation. Look, I, I still haven't received sufficient information on this particular more recent news, and that is something that I will be getting further information from officials on. Um, obviously, at the moment, uh, it is Australia who does have a duty of care for those people. Uh, New Zealand uh, is able to take responsibility at the point that people uh, do come through the UNHCR uh, and are willing to settle in New Zealand. Uh, and Australia will need to manage a situation that is in front of them. Uh, but of course, we would always hope and expect that the welfare and well-being of those people will be prioritised. And certainly from my conversations with uh, ministers in Australia, I would have confidence that that will happen. I do expect that we will have real progress before the end of this year in terms of people making that decision and getting the process of coming through to New Zealand. Absolutely. Um, And you mentioned that these processes need to be followed, but are you aware that people can be transferred to New Zealand overnight in emergency circumstances? And is that going to be considered because this has been called by multiple rights groups an emergency? Well, of course, those sorts of things are, are technically possible. And as I said before, we would always hope and our expectation would be that the health and well-being of people is put first. But that is, as has been the case right throughout this, this whole business going back a number of years, um, it is not New Zealand who is in control of the situation. Are you going to pick up the pieces, though, from Australia here? Well, New Zealand consistently has said that we are here, willing to help, both in terms of the situation Australia finds itself in and in terms of a good resettlement outcome uh, for these people. who have often gone through very traumatic experiences. So our commitment to the, the, the arrangement of 150 people per year for three years remains, and we're keen to get them here as soon as possible, and we'll work with Australia to achieve that. This is information that we knew before the meeting. What is new? Well, what's new is that we, um, as ministers on both sides of, of the Tasman, we've been able to sit in the room with our senior officials and get confidence that the processes are working through at the level of officials. And what we also both, uh, as uh, all three of us in fact as ministers, because there are effectively uh, two Australian ministers on the other side of the table, were able to convey to officials, uh, and we will be following up on this, is that we are keen to make as much progress on this issue as soon as we can. So by the end of the year, is that a commitment to have these 150 spots filled? Uh, I I couldn't say at this point that we would necessarily have all 150 by the end of the calendar year, but it is my hope that we will have made real progress towards that point. There are just over 100 uh, refugees and asylum seekers on Nauru. Uh, Theoretically, could New Zealand take all of them, even if they were going to be resettled elsewhere in the meantime while there is this COVID outbreak? Well, the uh, arrangement means that we can take up to 150 per year so that the numbers would fit into that. I think the the, the two critical uh, points here are firstly that they do have to work through the UNHCR, but secondly and critically, as I said before, we, we can't or won't force people to make the decision that they want to settle in New Zealand. It will be contingent on those people deciding that that is, a, that is their preferred outcome and we then work with them. Do you have confidence in Australia that they will be able to facilitate this? Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, That is one of the advantages of being able to sit down uh, face-to-face with ministers from the other side of the Tasman, is you get a very clear sense of the the, the purpose and the genuineness of the engagement. 
and I have every confidence through my engagement with Minister Giles and Minister O'Neill that they are very committed to this arrangement, that they understand the, the humanitarian issues that are at stake and that they want to work with us uh, to make sure that these people are able to resettle and to do so as fast as possible. And a couple of quick-fire questions, um, yes or no. Are you frustrated by this process? Oh, look, you always want these things to go faster, and I'll keep working to try and achieve that. Are you frustrated, yes or no? I, w- I wouldn't say frustrated. Everyone is working in good faith to make it happen. Will you bring refugees over under emergency circumstances, meaning some or all of them could come here overnight? I simply can't give that commitment here and now. I don't have enough information. Finally, do you believe that having progress made by the end of the year is good enough? Uh, yes, I believe that we can make significant progress by the end uh, of this year. It'll be a huge benefit for those people. Um, And I think it's something that New Zealanders will feel proud to to contribute towards. The mission lead for the New Zealand Medical Assistance Team in Niue, Martin Buett, says the team of five has hit the ground cautiously running because Niue doesn't currently have community transmission of COVID-19. The New Zealand team was flown in on a New Zealand Defence Force C-130 Hercules last week. There is a medical planner, a medic a logistics planner and a cultural advisor in the team. They are providing surge support to health workers who have been under the pump since quarantine-free flights touched down on New East shores last month. Martin Buett told RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis the team expect to be there for a minimum of one week. We hit the ground with a cautious run because obviously we are very aware that we were on a flight which was coming from New Zealand as well. So we actually obviously had to adhere to the uh, the public health protocols, as anybody else would do entering um, Niue at this time. Um, we've obviously had our negative PCR test prior for departure, but we've also been undertaking um, daily uh, rat tests to enable and keep a monitor on ourselves as a team and also try to make sure we um, minimise the potential for any um, infection, obviously, with COVID into the community. We are undertaking work in real earnest, if you wish, with working in partnership and alongside the way and counterparts, much as to get the, the lay of the land and understand how it is they do work here in, in the way. And tell me about this work that has commenced. So really the, the idea and the request was at the current time was to give some degree of surge support to the capability that they have here in Niue. Obviously that first arrival of the uh, plane entering Niue was provided them, unfortunately, with some COVID cases which they were recognised at the border. And it put them under a degree of, I won't say stress, but they, uh, the same people have to do multiple jobs. And obviously, this was an extra burden to them at that point. Um, they did initially have one patient who was hospitalised who had COVID, and that obviously meant that some of their um, team were had to concentrate on that particular patient for a period of time. So what we're doing here now is supporting, working with the uh, 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 and health colleagues. And the other part will allow us to be able to either do support like the PCR testing, which is required. So obviously there's quite a number of those on certain days as they go through post-flight entry. And the other part is doing, as you know, the business as usual within the hospital. And some of it will be to allow us to allow the team members here who have been working so hard for so long to be able to have some respite themselves. 
What sort of hours have those team members been pulling? The end of the day doesn't come just when the clock hits four o'clock because the expectation is to be able to, or the need is to be able to um, not only deal with what's in front of you, but also to try to uh, do health plans and protocols and everything else that goes with it. So it's it's not just concentrating on one job. As you know, in the way, everybody here works hard because they wear multiple hats anyway. What has been discussed in terms of when COVID enters the community? Is there a plan and are you part of that plan? I think that's something that you really need to look to see what the new AM Health Authority uh, and the, the, the government here wish to do and, and how they want to manage it. Obviously, they have a plan. They've been working through it for some time. And it is, the question is, um, at what point does it, you know, do they recognise that it has actually happened or when it happens? Um, and it's, it's, it's always a bit of a challenge, as we found in New Zealand. Um, once it gets through that border uh, and becomes in a community issue, then, of course, obviously, it becomes, it can become a r- rapid decision-making situation. I mean, w- we will concentrate on the, ask, the task that was given to us at the moment, which is to obviously try to give that surge support. We'll c- happily work, obviously, with our colleagues to work and talk through our experiences from New Zealand, um, which we have learned obviously over the last two years, and we will compare and give um, collegiate advice and, and support where we can. Tell me about those learnings. So from, if you remember the, those days when we didn't have any cases into New Zealand and how all of a sudden um, we are where we are now, I think it's a lot of it is to do with actually being aware of what COVID is and and obviously once you realise that it's something that can be managed with the right protocols um, then it becomes less of a, I I suppose a fear is is a word that you could use but you learn to be able to work your way through it and you understand and you have belief in the protocols the the mask wearing, the social distancing and obviously all that hand hygiene and all those sort of things and the vaccination which is so key to their uh, response here, I think, as was also shown in the Cook Islands. Absolutely, and also there were uh, PPE. There was PPE equipment on the flight that arrived. Um, did the equipment replenish stock or bolster supplies so that there are supplies going into the next few months? Oh, I think that's a quick, just a quick bolstering. I think you, you're never quite sure how something or quickly something's going to move. It's always better to um, over supply and be ready for it rather than to be calling for it um, at the last minute. So it was just, I think it was more of a question of making sure that they had sufficient capability and even if it was on top of what they had, um, it's better to be forearmed. And what plans are in place for Monday? So we'll be working through the weekend. We will just continue to work with our colleagues and see what it looks like and try to see if we can talk around others who might be able to supply us with some modelling and work through that and see what the case scenario is. But that will be something that lays outside our uh, our remit. At the moment, what we'll do is continue to support um, uh, our colleagues there. And hopefully, um, it may well be that, in fact, there's a... Um, well, that it may be that something that there isn't a need as, as the weeks progress. But we'll, at the moment, it's very much a question of let's wait and see and we can make some better judgment calls once we know a little bit more. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Korabwa for tuning in and siapo until next time.